Hello, and welcome to Co-OpCast, your one-stop shop for co-op news and reviews. This week, hold on to your socks, because we've got a special episode. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with a special episode for everybody. With me today is Jeremy Handel, the president and CEO of Handelabra. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And the Yindu is Yang, the lead programmer over there, John Arnold. Hello. Great to be here. Thanks for joining us. Well, we know you guys have a lot of exciting stuff. You've done a lot for the co-op community in the past with such great apps as Sentinels of the Multiverse and One Deck Dungeon. You also have dipped your toes into the non-cooperative world with Bottom of the Ninth. And now you're back to your first love, cooperative games with Aeon's End. Indeed, yeah. So as you know, you said it, you know, our biggest hits so far have been in the co-op space. Sentinels of the Multiverse obviously has been really great for us. And we have heard from a lot of players, Sentinels players, that a game that we should take a look at is a game called Aeon's End, which I know that you are a fan of. And so, you know, earlier this year, we started some conversations with uh, Indie Boards and Cards. And late summer, we kicked off the project. And now it is on Kickstarter trying to get over that last mile. Cool. Yeah, no, Aeon's End is definitely one of my favorite games. If you guys want to hear more about my thoughts on it, Mike's thoughts on it, please go back to one of our earlier episodes. I believe it's in the teens. It was just a great episode because we both really enjoyed the game and and let you know why there. But before we get too much into the new project, John, why don't you go ahead and get us started with just a little bit on your background? You know, how did you get into games? How did you get into board games and this whole digital app world? Sure. So I've been, you know, playing board games since I was a kid, as many of us did with Monopoly and Payday and all that sort of thing. But I didn't really get into modern games until university when a friend of mine had Carcassonne and Citadels, uh, Settlers of Catan. Uh, I think we even got into some pandemic uh, around that time and, uh, and you know, got into, hey, board games can actually be fun and not just something to want to kill yourself <laughs> as an adult. <laughs> as kids, you know, whatever, Monopoly is fine, risk, but that's sort of where I got into it. Uh, and I started working with Jeremy on doing apps, and I'm sure you'll, Jeremy will talk more about that. And we, uh, we ended up being booth neighbors with Greater Than Games at PAX Prime 2011. And from there, I got Sentinels of the Multiverse and fell in love with it. And it's been my favorite game ever since. I still play lots of different games. I actually travel the world a lot and find board game groups. And I've been uh, playing a lot of board games with people here in Bogota, Colombia. And so it's uh, definitely a love of mine. And I am happy to make digital versions of the games I love. So, And it's a good thing you can take your favorite game everywhere you want and play it with you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah imagine, my iPad is my library. <laughs> imagine if you had to travel with your board game library, John. How much fun would that be? Yeah, that, <laughs> I would be well. I would be well over that kilogram limit on yes. my luggage. <laughs> and Jeremy, how about you? What is your history with board games and co-op board games? And is Sentinels your favorite game as well? Ooh, wow, that's a big question. So first things first, I'm almost the exact opposite of John. I obviously played a bunch of board games when I was a kid, but I never really got into them as an adult until I was introduced to Sentinels of the Multiverse. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I did play a little bit of Axis and Allies in the mid-90s with a buddy of mine who was super into board games, but that was about it. And so my sort of reintroduction to the world of the modern board game was actually at PAX Prime 2011 when, you know, so our company started as just an app company. Uh, you know, we made this, the apps that every app company was making back in 2008. Uh, you know, made a to-do a to list app, a photography app, 
And then we got a bee in our bonnet that we wanted to make a game. And so we made a game called uh, Uncle Slam, which is President on President Boxing. It's, well, <laughs> it, yeah, it's, its working title was Presidential Pugilism. And nice. we just, yeah, we just decided we, we really wanted to be a game studio. That's what we wanted to do. Uh, the experience of making that game, you know, just the art and the science of it, I think really sort of hits all the, chick, ticks all the boxes for us as a, as a team. And so we went to PAX Prime 2011 to sort of show that game off. And our booth neighbor right next door to us was Greater Than Games, who had just launched Sentinels of the Multiverse one month earlier at Gen Con 2011 and caused a huge stir. And so during setup, you know, they came over and played some Uncle Slam and told us what they thought of it. We went over and played some Sentinels of the Multiverse and told them what we thought of it. You know, and whereas John immediately sort of fell in love with the gameplay of it, for me, it was more about the characters and the lore. You know, obviously, you know, you can't really grow up these days without having some knowledge of superheroes in some way but this was like a whole different world of superheroes that i had never seen before that had all this rich backstory and all these really cool characters and i just that was what i sort of fell in love with and so over the course of that show um i actually was introduced to a couple of other uh games some some co-ops some not i played a little bit of munchkin i played a little bit of pandemic but i really that was when i was kind of like you know these tabletop games are really an interesting thing it was actually I mean, I don't know the exact timeline here, but I know that that was probably close to the beginning of this sort of golden Kickstarter age of of board gaming, of modern board gaming right now. And so over the course of the show, we basically said to them, look, you know, this seems awesome. If you're ever interested in turning this into a digital game in any capacity, you know, let us know. We would love to work with you. And they immediately said, you know, it's funny. We actually just sold the rights to somebody at Gen Con a month ago. So sorry, oh, but, if, but if that ever changes, <laughs> we'll, let, we'll give you a call and let you know. And so, you know, we sort of went on our own paths for a little while. But, you know, eventually it all came back to it and we, you know, are working with them. And we have been now, uh, you know, Sentinels has been out on the app stores now for over four years. Yeah. And I mean, Sentinels is a great app. It's funny. If you listen to our Sentinels of the Multiverse episode, my counterpart, Mike, you know, was kind of lukewarm on the game. He'd played it at first when the game first came out a couple of times and kind of liked it okay. And then your app is actually what got him full bore into it. When we did the review, he was a little lukewarm. And then he started playing the app more and more afterward. And he just got into it. Now he's bought everything, both for the app and in physical form. So yeah, we uh, actually we hear that a lot. Actually, um, you know, one of the things that we joke around about our games is that you know, but when you make a digital tabletop game, your game becomes the ultimate rules lawyer. You know, you're not going to forget a plus one damage. You're not going to forget an ongoing effect. Which you know, sometimes, especially with games that have so much to track, like Sentinels, that can be a real concern. And as you say, sometimes people will play a game on the tabletop. And not love it. And some of that might be just because of the game. Some of that might be because they're not playing it right. And, you know, when you have a tutorial that can sort of walk your walk you through it step by step, it becomes a, a lot easier to make sure that you're playing the game the way that it, the designers intended. And that's something that we, you know, we pride ourselves on is making sure the game is exactly what the designer wanted it to be. We work really closely with the designers to, to make sure of that. I don't no, think I've ever played One Deck Dungeon correctly on the tabletop. <laughs> <laughs> And wait a minute, you're the one responsible for implementing the rules in the game, so you, you uh, no, must Jean, know what they are. Jean-Marc and David does that part. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> it's funny, I, I will play a game that I've played several times in the past, and I'll get the app for it, and I'll start playing it, 
and I'll go, wow, I didn't remember this game being so hard. And I'm sure it's exactly what you just said there. I'm sure I played some key rules wrong where I made it much easier for myself. Yeah, we've actually been having a couple comments on the ongoing on the Kickstarter now for Aeon's End that, you know, someone was like, because we, we were lucky enough that we had enough lead time, we were able to put together a short playable demo for the game. So that if you go to the Kickstarter at AeonsEndDigital.com, you can try you can actually play like through several turns. And you know, some people were playing through it who know Aeon's End really, really well, and they're like, hey, I think I found a bug. When I do this, this happens. And we're like, uh, no, that's actually how it's supposed to work. And a couple of people realize that they've actually been playing Aeon's End slightly incorrectly for, you know, several years at this point. Well, I am glad that I did not encounter such problems. All the rules were as I remembered them. So I did go over and try out that demo you have. It's really good. The interface is really slick. I'm super impressed with where you are with it already. And I know the game's not even ready to come out yet. So I'm really impressed with what you guys have done with it. The interface is really uh, smooth. Yeah, thanks. I think John can actually speak a little bit to this. You know, when we sit down to start a project, we ask ourselves a number of sort of fundamental design questions because we want to understand, first of all, what makes this game fun? Because that's the most important thing to preserve when we bring it over to digital. But then, as you say, there's a question of UI. When you're playing in the physical world, everything you need is right in front of you. It's a physical object. You can grab it. In digital, though, sometimes you're working with limited screen real estate, sometimes other things. So I don't know. John, do you want to talk a little bit about how we sort of work through that process? Sure. Yeah, it's it's always an, an iteration uh, where you know we start out with a piece of paper and a pencil and sketch some ideas of how you know a UI layout could work and how interactions could work. One of the things that we've learned over the years, you know, from Sentinels through Bond of the Ninth and and One Deck Dungeon and Eon's End is you know trying to to make things feel more natural and have fewer you know pop up dialogues and that sort of thing is a direction we try to bring it. For each game, we try to come up with a distillation of like what's the most important thing that we want this game to sort of be about or, you know, have a touchstone. For Sentinels, it was, you know, this should feel like playing a comic book. So everything's in comic panels. There's thought bubbles and, you know, like thought things and sound effects and, and all that kind of idea, page flips and so on. Whereas, you know, with One Deck Dungeon, it's a totally different thing. It's, you know, you're, you want to have a sense of place of being in the dungeon and so we have, you know, animations of going through corridors and monsters popping out and sort of atmospheric sounds. For, for Eon's End, uh, you know, that's still an ongoing process. Uh, what we're looking at so far is, you know, really trying to, to dig into the magical nature of the breaches. And so you see in the demo and mock-ups, breaches aren't little cardboard squares that turn around. They're, you know, living, breathing, magical, powerful things. And we want to, you know, bring that through, through the whole interface and, you know, make that, give you that feeling. And so that's something that we're going to continue to refine as yeah. we work on it. Yeah. And I like how you have like little symbols for each of the spells and you see when the symbols loaded up in the breach and uh, how the breaches themselves kind of look like a crescent moon when you first get them, but they start opening up until they're fully opened. And it's really a neat visual you've created as well as it's really easy to see, you know, the exact cost it, it is to, focus the breach or to open the breach. And if you guys don't know what we're talking about, again, go back. We're not going to do a rules explanation here. Go back and listen to our episode on ANZ. But uh, it really is neat and intuitive for someone who's played the game before. I, I fell right into it without really needing any rules questions. Yeah, th that's a really good example of something where, you know, we're 100% preserving how the game works, the rules of the game and everything, but we're not limited to what you can do with a piece of cardboard. Because, you know, that rotation of the cardboard on the tabletop 
is effective in that medium. But we can, you know, we can still keep that idea of rotating, which I really like that we we're able to keep that rotating. But instead, we're rotating this sphere, you know, this this occluding sphere as a crescent moon kind of idea, and you know, bringing it to life uh, in a different way, while still, you know, obviously preserving the gameplay mechanics. So. Yeah, so what I was going to follow up on when you were talking about iconography, you know, that's one of the things that we actually spend quite a bit of time sort of digging into when we're working in the de design phase, because, you know, again, sort of exactly what John was just talking about on the tabletop, you know, you are confined by the way that a piece of cardboard works. And so if you have a card that has some text on it, that card will always have that text on it. But once you've played a game... 10 times, you probably aren't even reading that text anymore. You recognize it by the artwork on the card. You recognize it by the color or by the hit points or whatever it is. And so, you know, given that we have limited real estate, we always strive to find sometimes an iconography, but sometimes, you know, maybe it's the shape of the item on the table or something along those lines. That was actually something that we played with uh, in Sentinels was like maybe an ongoing card is a square and then maybe a minion is a star, you know, and it, it's not an idea we ended up sticking with. But, you know, we play around with those ideas to find ways to efficiently use the screen real estate while maintaining the ability to always get to an exact replica of the card if you if you want to read it. But for people who are more familiar with the game, the shorthand of the icons or the artwork or whatever allows you to play the game more quickly. And so we actually had somebody who was playing Sentinels as speedruns for a while, and they were proudly posting how fast they could complete a game. Whereas, you know, a game like that <laughs> is like 30 minutes, 40 minutes, maybe even an hour on the tabletop. This guy was finishing games in like five, six, eight minutes, um, just blasting through because he didn't have to read anything. He knew exactly what every card did, and he was dragging it and dropping it, and it was just super fast. So, Wow. Yeah, that's pretty neat. I, I know speed runs are things in other games where they're not intended to be. I hadn't heard of a speed run through Sentinels before, though. That's uh, that's interesting that people are moving it to the digital board game world as well. Oh, yes. I guess anything people can do to like, you know, hey, look at what I did. You know, they're going to they're going to try to do so. I, start I know getting that... ready. Start getting ready for your Ian's and speed runs. That's it'll be a thing. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, I think I could do it. I think I could be one of the top people. I mean, as far as that stuff and achievements go, too, I know that's a big part of digital implementations, which you just don't get on the real physical actual board game version. So is that something you're planning on implementing into Aeon's End as well? Yeah, we always put achievements into our games on Steam and, and otherwise, whether they're, you know, yeah, actually, achievements is kind of a whole topic on itself because there's lots of different styles of achievements and we try to bring them into the game. So there's your your basic ones like, you know, complete a certain number of games or do a certain amount of damage that sort of thing and you also have ones that are more interesting like you know do something in a weird way or explore a space of the game that uh, you wouldn't normally like sentinels for example has an achievement to win without playing any cards <laughs> or win without using any powers things like that that like you can restrict yourself to try to do things uh, that we also would be use... insane i can't yeah. even imagine doing that yeah like you could imagine win a game of eon's end without focusing a breach for example it's probably possible and very difficult. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, we have, I can tell you, we haven't even really, uh, that isn't something that we haven't looked at yet. Like we know we're going to do achievements for Ian's end, but we haven't uh, put together a list or anything yet, but that's going to be part of the process. We also use achievements in Sentinels for unlockable content that can automatically sync between different devices, because then this is something we learned from Mass Effect, where if you had an achievement on Mass Effect, it would unlock something in the game. You know, if you signed into a different Xbox, then you would get the thing. And so we do the same thing for Sentinels. And, you know, if and when we have more unlockable content in Ian's end, we would do that too, likely. Yeah, and that's one of the things, too, that I think is so much fun 
when we're talking about the digital translations of these sorts of games, because as you said, you don't have that really on the tabletop. And, you know, even though when you buy one of our games, it, it approximates what you get if you buy the box, you know, like you open it up, you have access to all the things that are in it. You can set up the game however you want. We found that, you know, digital players tend to like the feeling of progression or, or the idea that they're working towards something. And that's where we got the idea for the variants in Sentinels, because, you know, unlike, you know, a game where you could potentially just say, okay, well, there's Tachyon, and here's these four other options that you could play for Tachyon. We could just charge you 99 cents for each one. But that didn't seem like the most efficient use of the, of the, of the game space, quite frankly. And that was where we came up with the idea of having sort of story challenges that you could work towards and not tell anybody what they were. And so as a result, the community actually works whenever a new variant is, becomes unlockable. Someone inevitably unlocks it and doesn't have any idea how they did it. And then, the community sort of spends a bunch of time chatting about like, okay, well, what was your game state when it happened? Did you have this card in your hand? How many cards have been played by the villain? And they start sort of trying to work out exactly what the specifics of that unlock were. And we found that to be a really, really fun way to keep the audience sort of talking and playing and having fun. And that's definitely the kind of thing that there really is no analog for that on the analog world. You know I, mean, I mean, I guess the closest thing I could think of is something like Legacy. Uh, sure. Right, you know, but then it's like, spoiler alert. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, where, where you're, like, unlocking <laughs> things, and, you know, as the game goes on, you're just waiting for these, I guess it's, like, jackpot moments, like, these moments where it's like, oh, that cool thing just happened, and now, like, I, you know, I get to see it. The neat part about on an app, though, is, you know, you can't cheat to get there. You know, <laughs> there there is a way in tabletop to just say, hey, try to beat the game without using opening any breaches. And I'm sure people would try to do that. But at the same time, there's no way to show off to your friends that you did that. Whereas in uh, di- digital implementations, you definitely get that nice badge or whatever it is mm, yeah. that kind of shows that you have it. Yeah. Trophies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that's that's uh, neat. And I know one thing that you guys are really, really good at is taking a product that you release and it's good and then iterating on that over time. And that's something else board games, you know, as a, as a tabletop designer, I'm very jealous because there are certainly things I'd like to go back to on our earlier designs and change them. And you guys actually have the ability to do that. And you've done a great job with Sentinels of really increasing, you know, somebody spends $10 up front, $15 up front, whatever it ends up being, and they get a lot more content over time without, actually adding more money as they go. Yeah, and that actually, that comes from our sort of history as a software development house because, you know, that is, you know, aside from being a game developer first, being a, a, you know, just general developer first, we developed a number of sort of internal methodologies that we use uh, and one of them is the idea of an MVP or a minimum viable product. And so what we do, and, and we did this with Sentinels, we did it with One Deck Dungeon as well, uh, and, and Bottom of the Ninth, honestly, is that, you know, as we said earlier, we boil down what's the core of this game, what makes it great, what makes it fun. Let's get the most boiled down fun version of that, launch it, and then continually grow it and and make it better over time. You know, and so sometimes that can mean different things for different games. You know, with Sentinels, for instance, we launched it on tablets first, and then we brought it to Steam two months later, mainly because that's what the market told us we wanted. They wanted. You know, we launched it for tablets, and everyone's like, "Oh, this is great! I would love to play this on Steam." We had Steam wasn't even on our radar at that point, but you know, we put it up on Greenlight, which is the way that you did things back then. 
We got voted up in, I think it was like 32 days, and then we launched it about a month after that. So two months from when we launched it on iPad, and now we were launching it on Steam. Then, you know, one of the things that was actually missing from the very first version was uh, online multiplayer. And so we we actually knew that it was going to be a huge project to do. We knew that some people were going to want it, but we knew that it would take so long to do that if we waited until we had it to launch the game, it would take an extra year or so to get it actually to the point where it would be fun. And so while people are out there playing the game and having fun and enjoying it in a solo capacity or, you know, local pass and play, we were working on a multiplayer in the background so that when we finally brought it out, number one, the game was already had a really big following. And so people were ready to sort of start playing with their friends. And number two... Any of the bugs that we would have had to deal with on the content side, a lot of them had already been fixed in bug patches over the intervening two years. So the only bugs we really needed to focus on was getting the multiplayer actually working. Which And we find that approach really works well because it allows us to focus on smaller snippets of things that are going to improve the game in some measurable way right now and not have to do sort of the olden days way, which is like, all right, we're going to work on this for four years and then we're just going to launch it. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And to be honest, when I first saw that there was no online multiplayer, I was a little bit sad. But knowing your history and now seeing, you know, hearing you say that's what you did with Sentinels and, you know, seeing that actual progress myself, it excites me to know that that is on your radar and something you're looking at for the future. And you just want to get the game out so people can start enjoying it right away while you're still working on those things rather than waiting for two years to launch the product. And now, you know, we've got two more years of no ands and so uh, right. I'm glad you're doing it that way. Yeah. And I mean, you know, some people on the Kickstarter have asked, obviously, about multiplayer, some more vehemently than others. But, you know, we actually know from internal data from Sentinels that, quite frankly, fewer than one in 10 people ever play an online game. And whether that would hold exactly true for Aeon's End is an open question. But, you know, we have, uh, you know, several years worth of data now at this point to know that, as much as we would love to be able to get multiplayer into the game, and we want to as soon as we can, it's more important to us that the 9 out of 10 players get a solid experience that they can play right now and bring the rest of those players in later versus everybody having to wait and nobody gets Aeon's End at all until until that multiplayer is ready. That's a really good way of handling it, I think. And I assume that holds true for iOS and Android as well. Is that the plan? Yeah, I mean... You know, we we develop in a, a game engine called Unity, which means that, you know, sort of the core nugget of the game. So like 70 percent of the game will work on any platform. And then there's like an extra 20 to 30 percent that we would need to put in to bring it to, let's say, Steam or let's say iOS or let's say Android. And so, you know, we definitely have plans to bring the game to mobile, assuming we fund go out there and, and and back us so that we can make this game a reality. You know, we are planning to bring it to mobile, but, you know, for some re- for several reasons, it's not a part of the Kickstarter. The most obvious being that Apple and Google actually don't make it very easy to fulfill Kickstarters via their app stores. I don't know why they still are like that, but we've actually been in direct contact with Apple about the situation, and they always tell us, oh, someday we're going to be able to have you do that without having to worry about breaking the rules, but it just never ends up being that way, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, no, that shocks me that they haven't been able to figure that out yet. And I know while everybody thinks everybody plays everything on iOS, I know Steam is still a very popular platform and probably comprises a big chunk of your audience as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, And Valve is a very developer friendly company, I think, because, you know, they built Steam for themselves. And so, you know, that means part it all it means that it's kind of janky <laughs> <laughs> yes. the word. there's some special parts about it 
but it also you know it means that they're they're dog booting it right like they use it for the bit they built it for their own games team fortress and everything and they used it for their own games and and they are developers and they 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 know you know what developers need in terms of you know being able to cycle new updates and give out our you know sell keys and all that kind of stuff uh and so kickstarter support is really really easy on that and as i'm sure jeremy's going to say uh, our sales on steam for our strategy games like sentinels and one deck dungeon are higher than on mobile so you know it, it's a no-brainer for us to go to steam first uh these days yeah we actually sell uh, on the average between two and three times as much on steam as we do uh on mobile and and again i think some of that is because these games <clears throat> at least the co-op ones the deep strategy games not so much bottom of the ninth bottom of the ninth is kind of flipped because bottom of the ninth is a much more sort of bite-sized game so that one sells better on mobile for sure but the deeper strategy games i feel like and we actually did an internal poll at once to sort of poll our audience about this you know the kinds of the kind of games that people play in addition to our games are deep strategy games like civilization you know what i mean it's not right it's not the you know mobile you know the sort of typical mobile games that these people are playing although they do play some of them as well and so as a result you get those same people who are like you know when you play a game of civilization like, I don't know that I've ever played a full game of Civilization in a single sitting, and I can sit for a really long time. <laughs> and so, right. you know, these games, like Sentinels, as I said earlier, yes, there's somebody trying to play a game and get it done in five minutes, but that's not usually the way people play Sentinels. They they want to sit, think through their their moves, and, you know, our average uh, game session time is, I think, somewhere in, like, the 30 to 40 minutes. And so, you know, that really lends you to, you know, sitting down on your couch with your laptop or sitting in your gaming chair and, and playing. You know, we actually were not expecting that, as, as is obvious from the fact that we launched on tablets first and didn't come to steam until a few months later but once we did we were like oh wow this you know we're definitely going to be going to steam in the future because this is clearly where people who want to play these games are spending the majority of their time well that makes sense then so i mean you got two things going for you starting with steam number one they don't give you a hard time and hassle you about kickstarter and number two it's where the majority of your audience is and I mean, I will agree. The one thing Mike and I had talked about in the past is some of these games, when you play them on iOS, like even if they're some of your favorite board games of all time, you play it like five or six times and then you get bored of it because they don't really hold up to repeated plays and multiple plays. And the one thing I'll say you did a great job of doing is picking games like Sentinels and Aeons and where really that's not going to be an issue because there's so much content out there. There's so many, even if you play the game 10 times in a row, each time is going to feel different and be different just because of the enemies you're going against or the heroes you're using or the, you know, the breach mages you're using. So, I mean, I, I want to commend you on that. First of all is picking games that really have a long tail to them. Yeah. I mean, I'm also vehemently agreeing <laughs> <laughs> to use a phrase we used in a meeting earlier today. Uh, so that's, that's a good point. Like, you know, I love Pandemic, but there's only so many times I can play Pandemic because it's the same game, right? Like, there's even if you choose different roles, there's a very limited sort of number of setups that that you play. But you know, Sentinel's core game itself is over nine thousand combinations. We haven't actually worked out the numbers for Eon Zen, but I I wouldn't be surprised if it's even more with the the number of market combinations that you could make. That's the nice part is that, yeah, it's not just two things. You're right. There's that market also. So that's a third variable. So every game is going to play differently. And the nice part is with the physical version, you know, you got to take time to separate it out or find some way to make a randomized market. But here, you know, you just click a button, you get started and it'll be randomized for you. Yeah. And so to speak to, to what you're talking about, 
it really does go down to our project selection sort of criteria. One of the reasons why we loved Sentinels and wanted to work with Sentinels is because it grabbed both John and myself in slightly different ways, but we understood sort of what was special about that game immediately. And what's special about it is that it is a well-designed system. You know, and this is where sort of the, the software development side starts to creep in. You know, you can make you know, a really, you know, somewhat simple and fun and compelling board game. But like you said, if after you've played it five or six times, you feel like you know how it's going to go, that's not going to have staying power. And, you know, designers who come up with really well-designed systems whereby the mechanics of the game are there, but it's more about the combinations in their sort of infinite multitudes that make the game fun. Uh, you know, it's not about like, oh, if I roll this dice I'm gonna and I get a six, I'm going to win. But if I roll a one, I'm only going to get, you know, I'm going to lose. It's more about like, okay, well... How can I recombine these various things in this game to get something fresh? And, you know, even without Oblivion, you know, John mentions that there's 9,000 combinations in the core game. Once you add in all of the expansions that we've done, it's literally over, it's like billions of possible combinations. And that doesn't even, (laughs) that doesn't even count shuffling the deck. That's just possible permutations and combinations of different heroes, different villains, different environments. And so, yeah. I think it's in the quadrillions now. Yeah, it's, yeah, because it goes up. Like, I don't know if it's exponentially or logarithmically every time you add something new because it adds even more combinations to all the previous combinations. So uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that we do for that is then audition games before we decide if it's the kind of thing that we're interested in. You know, we've we fielded pitches from probably dozens of companies and individual designers who are like, hey, you know, we think this would make a really great digital game. You know, will you try it and let us know what you think? And, you know. We only have made now we're, you know, we're getting ready to make our fourth full game, but out of, you know, 20 or 30 that we've looked at, there's a reason why we've picked the ones that we've picked. And it's because of that factor of like, is it fun, but will it continue to be fun and be able to provide, you know, hours of replayability for years to come? You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, being that we're co-op cast, you know, what has drawn you to cooperative board games as far as, you know, why why is it you keep coming back to like Sentinels, Aeons, and One Deck Dungeon? What is it about cooperative games that really makes them, you know, something you want to work with? Uh, one of the, I think, sort of simplest reasons from a, you know, video game design standpoint is you can easily play them alone or in a pass and play context. And so you're not really, you're not reliant on having to have multiplayer, having to have AI those are things that are, you know, they take a lot of time to develop, which is a lot of money to develop. They're very complicated. You think of uh, Sentinels multiplayer. Before we added multiplayer Sentinels, people were like, it's impossible. You're never going to be able to do that. There's so much going on with decisions between different players and everything. But, you know, we figured it out. But it still made sense to release it without multiplayer because a lot of cooperative games hold up playing them on your own because you can sort of treat it as a big puzzle that you can solve yourself. So that's sort of a number one thing, you know, from a development standpoint. Another thing that we found that is, it's kind of a side benefit, I guess, but it's it's, it's important, is the communities around co-op games are, you know, a little stronger, a little nicer, friendlier. <laughs> uh, and part of that, I think, is, you know, if you're going to get together and play a co-op game, you're, you're not predisposed to be a jerk. There's still going to be jerks. <laughs> but, right. you know, if, if, you're, if you're by nature, you know, going to work with someone to play something, that just changes the conversation a little bit. So our forums are night and day from something, you know, like Call of Duty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Heroes of the Storm, I'm sure. I know that's yeah. a game I love to play, but boy, uh, people can get uh, not friendly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I will say, too, like, I don't think enough can possibly be said about the community that has grown up around us and around Sentinels. You know, they are, to a person, 
so nice and so great. It, it, and it actually makes life on us fairly easy because whenever a bad apple does show up, we don't usually need to worry about, quote unquote, dealing with it or moderating because our community sort of has self-selected to be helpful. And so, you know, if somebody comes in full of, uh, you know, anger or, or, you know, oh, this game is crashing all the time. Why aren't they ever fixing it? You know, our fans come in and they've got our back. They're like, hey, I understand you're new here, but they will fix it. They've been fixing it for four years. Like, relax, take a deep breath. It's going to be fine. And, and, and we love that about our community. You know, we've got a Discord server where people hang out. They also hang out, obviously, on the Greater Than Games forum as well. And so as a result, it's really... Oh, and our Twitch, of course, you know, they show up to watch us play the game every week. And it's just, you know, we know a lot of them by name now. We see them at shows. And, you know, I just I can't say enough good things about our community. I, we love them so much. Being that Aeon's End is one of my favorite games, you know, I'm super excited to see what you do with it. I, I mean, I love the interface already. I can't believe how good and smooth it is already. I can't wait to see what you've done. I know like for Sentinels, you have weekly challenges, things like that. I don't know if it'll ever get to that level, but just uh, I'm excited to see what cool things you come up with in the future for Anne's End, which is already one of my favorite games. Yeah, great. Thanks. And and I will just say this, you know, the, again, the reason why we picked Anne's End as our next project is because we see it having that long you know, life on the digital tabletop, just like it does on the regular tabletop. You know, we we see obviously tons of more content coming. But as you say, you know, if there's cool new features we can add in to keep people playing and keep the conversation going, you know, that's we saw that when we when we played Aeon's End and that just it spoke to us in the same way it did for Sentinels. It was, you know, this seems like the kind of game, you know, it's already got a great community online. You know, we can really tap into this and, you know, really give people another way to love the thing that they already love. You know, that's one of the other things about making adaptations is, you know, people who love Sentinels, you know, and John's a perfect example, traveling to South America, like if he wants to keep playing that game while he's traveling, he can't bring the box with him. But we've now given him a way to continue to play that game and continue to enjoy it even when he's traveling. You know, with the multiplayer in Sentinels, it you know, people who maybe have to move across the country can still hang out with each other. You know, the the, the story behind that is one of our streamers who streams on Monday night, her and her brother used to play board games together and then she moved away and they use Sentinels to stay in touch. So every week on Monday nights, they play together and they stream Sentinels together on our channel. And it's just been a really great way for them to continue the hobby that they love together, even though they're separated by geography. And obviously, you know, and I will say this, as somebody who has yet to ever sit down and actually play a game of Dungeons and Dragons because I can't find a group to do it with, I love that, that that is an option that we can provide to people. Absolutely. And so with that in mind, the co-op community is super excited to hear your latest announcement too, which is Spirit Island coming to iOS. Well, I don't know about iOS. Or, or I'm sorry, coming coming digital. Coming to digital, right. Eventually iOS, but similarly to the way that it's working with Aeon's End, it'll likely do Steam first, maybe some other things first. We're not far enough along in the planning of that yet uh, to know, but we have we are have officially announced that we are going to be working with Greater Than Games to work on Spirit Island. We're going to be probably breaking ground on that sometime in 2019. Oh, super exciting, because that was one of our top co-ops of the year last year, tied with Gloomhaven. And if we had to recount, we probably Spirit Island would have moved ahead of Gloomhaven at this point for us. So super excited to hear that um, that that is coming to digital as well. Yeah, it's such a great game. And, you know, Greater Than Games have been such great partners that it was really a no brainer, you know, with with as well as that game is selling and as much as people are enjoying it and knowing that it's coming from a team that we've worked with before. It was really a no brainer to say that we should, you know, get that on the on the schedule and, and you know, plan that out for next year. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Aeon Zen Kickstarter. 
which for 15 bucks you can get the game, which is amazing. I mean, if you were to go buy the physical version of the game, it would not be $15, certainly, even to get into it. So if you've never played the game before and you want to try one of the best co-ops there is out there, 15 bucks seems like a, a kind of a no-brainer entry point to get into it. Yeah, and I will mention that that's actually a $5 discount over what it's going to be at retail. Uh, the game is going to be $20 at retail, and then uh, for Kickstarter backers, we're letting them get in at 15 So that's an incentive. If you want to get in now, save 5 bucks. Yeah, our goal is to get it out sometime in the first half of next year. Um, that's what our sort of stated goal on the Kickstarter is. And obviously, as we've mentioned several times, there are tons of expansion content. So aside from just getting to fully funded and, you know, getting the game out, we, you know, if we can get to some stretch goals, we can start pre-funding some of these expansions like the Depths and the Nameless. Um, and there's even some uh, some bonus characters on there that are brand new mages that are going to be exclusive to the digital version. All right, you sold me. Everybody, get out, get your pledge button ready, get your pledge finger ready, whatever it's called, and and let's make this thing a reality and hit a bunch of stretch goals. Because And look, I have no financial incentive at all to be saying this, but I do love the game, and I want to see as much content made available for it as possible. So you've really got me excited with this. There are other pledge levels as well. So you can get, you know, if you want extra digital goodies, if you know, you can get all the cool skins and stuff like that. So you can get free exclusive play mats and sleeves. And then there's also an alpha and beta level as well. So can you kind of explain what those are? Take it away, John. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'd also like to mention, and um, we can follow up on this a bit, uh, we've been working very closely with Kevin Riley, the designer of Eon's End, and uh, and he's excited to be uh, putting together some uh, digital-only player cards and mages that take advantage of the platform. So we'll follow back up on that. But uh, yeah, for the alpha and beta, those are you know part of the programs that you know once we've uh, got the got content and features implemented and tested internally here, uh, we turn them loose on the alpha testing team, which actually uses a, a text-based interface to the game. So uh, like command line, you know, old school Zork <laughs> almost <laughs> sort of interface. And so that's really gets down to the bare metal of the rules where, you know, there's no artwork, there's just text and the rules of the game. And, uh, and you, you know, we build it at that low level so that we can really iterate quickly on the interactions of different things. And uh, that's available uh, at the highest level to get in on the, the alpha program. Uh, and the beta program will be through Steam. And uh, later on in the process, we'll be uh, getting things into beta where you can, you know, people will be testing. They're still testing the rules, interactions and stuff, of course, because that's all still there. You know, also interactions and visual stuff and, and how things all work together and, you know, iterating on that stuff. So we, we, we rely a lot on the feedback of our alpha testers and beta testers to, to help make the game just that much better. And unlike a lot of other companies, our alpha and beta programs actually live on throughout, you know, well, as far as we know, forever, uh, the life of the product where, you know, if we're continuing to make new content and do bug fixes and add features, those are all still going through the same alpha and beta teams. Like once you're in those teams, you're part of them uh, for as long as you want to participate. Oh, wow. So if you really always want to get the newest things first, this is the best way to go. That's really neat. Yeah, yeah so, exactly. so it's kind of, you know, the opposite of the of the sort of accepted thing now of all of these sort of public betas. So like, you know, Fallout 76, you know, pre-order it and you can get it access to the beta, which is really just a two-week stress test before they launch and that's it. You know, with us, right. it's, it's more about 
all that ongoing stuff that you're talking about, you know, so the beta testers will say like, oh, you know, hey, we're going to test out this new feature where we can do X, Y, and Z, you know, and the beta testers will get it, they'll play with it. But more importantly, they'll give us feedback on it. You know, it's not, they're not just bug hunters. You know, if we put a, a feature in and we ask the beta testers what they think, we actually want to know, like, is this enhancing how you play the game? Is it going to change the way you play the game? You know, and, and in fact, you know, one of the, the sort of really big pushes for Aeon's End in this in this capacity is the fact that there are going to be some of these exclusive digital cards and new mages, which are crossover characters from other games. We got one coming from One Deck Dungeon and uh, Night Mist, who's coming from Sentinels of the Multiverse. And those mechanics are brand new. And so, you know, we we really need to know, like, okay, does this feel like it actually fits in the world of Aeon's End? Do we feel like it's breaking it? Is it making the game too easy? Is it making it too hard? And it's through the alpha and the beta teams that we're going to have that dialogue between the designer, Kevin Riley, and the actual players in order to sort of, you know, hone the game and make it the best it can possibly be before it finally comes out. Cool. And yeah, John, you kind of got into that a little bit earlier as well. So what kind of new mechanics are you talking about here? Stuff that can basically only be done on digital? So similar to like Hearthstone, you know, compared to a Magic the Gathering? Yeah, exactly. So elements that, you know, you where well, that you could in theory, you know, do them on the tabletop, but you might, you know, if you were, you might have to be writing on your cards or have a GM who's, you know, drawing a card randomly and looking at it and telling you what to do. <laughs> you know, things that a computer can do that in a you know pure co-op game you might not be able to do very easily and oh, so, cool. so so yeah kevin is really excited about different mechanics he's actually like come up with like i'd say probably like about a dozen or so different sort of categories of mechanics you know ranging from you know get a random card from your deck or you've got these you know ethereal cards that you know you can play them once and they disappear or all sorts of different stuff uh, the night mist he's put up a couple designs on the kickstarter preliminary designs for Shea from One Deck Dungeon and Night Mist from Sentinels. And, you know, Night Mist in Sentinels has a, a magic number on all our cards. And so in so the same thing in Eon's End. So, you know, are you on the tabletop, you're probably not going to put a sticker on all of your cards every game for Night Mist. Uh, I mean, someone will. You know someone will. But... <laughs> <laughs> I hope uh, not. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so those, those sorts of things where, you know, you can do really interesting stuff in the digital space that is just really not feasible to expect that a tabletop player is going to do. And that's neat because you're not only getting a great experience, well-tested experience in the board game itself, but now you're getting new content for it, which isn't going to be available anywhere else either. So, you know, they're, they're very synergistic as far as, Hey, when you go out and play with your friends on game night, you know, you take your physical copy of the game, but when you're sitting at home, and you want to play one of the best co-ops out there, you can do that as well and, and even get new content so you're not spoiling stuff for yourself. Because I know that's one of my favorite things about games like Aeon's End where each enemy plays so differently than each other. I just want to experience how it's different and how, you know, as a designer, that really, you know, tickles my design brain every time I say, well, what can they do differently than they've done before? And And just seeing all the new cool things that they do is really neat. And now... Being able to expand that out because they have more options, you know, things you can't do on tabletop. You know, I'm excited again to see what kind of new mechanics they can come up with. Yeah. And of course, for the purists, you know, the base game content and the regular expansion content will all be there, you know, as it is and work exactly as you expect. But you can add in some of the, the extra stuff if you wish. All right. Well, 
you guys got me excited. I'm kind of fanboying out. Now I know how Mike feels. Man, we had a Street <laughs> Masters episode, and he was just fanboying <laughs> out the whole time. I feel the same way. I mean, and and people know, because I, I, I talk about it all the time, one of my favorite games. And so getting a digital copy of it's going to be super fun. Awesome. All right. So where can people find you if they have any questions either about the Kickstarter or what other projects you have coming in the future? Sure. So yeah, if you go to, uh, I mean, our, our website is handelabra.com. It's spelled like candelabra, but with an H. Um, <laughs> and uh, to find the Aeon's End Kickstarter, just go to aeonsenddigital.com or search Aeon's End on Kickstarter. You can follow the company on all the various social medias at Handelabra, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, we also do, uh, as I mentioned. MySpace? <laughs> we're not on MySpace. Uh, okay. We are on Instagram now, though. That's a thing nice. that just happened. Friendster? No. Well, hang on now. <laughs> um, uh, and then uh, I have mentioned a couple times, we do actually do live streams uh, a bunch of times every week. We do Sentinel streams and some One Deck Dungeon streams in the evenings. Uh, and that's at twitch.tv slash Handelabra Games. And we actually are doing, during the campaign, we're doing live development streams of Aeon's End. So you can actually watch how the game is being made and sort of see how do, how do we implement it in the code level? How do we hook it up to the UI? Um, how do we design things like animations and things like that? We've already done two. Um, there's a third one that's going out this, you know, this week of Thanksgiving. And there'll be one more uh, the following week, which is right before we leave for PAX East. Or excuse me, PAX Unplugged. Yes, and I will be there too. So I'm looking forward to, to meeting you guys then. Me too. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much again, John, Jeremy, for joining us. Look forward to everyone going out there and at least looking at the Aeons End Kickstarter page. I will say just click through that demo, the playable demo they have on there. It's really fun. I've done it two or three times now, and it's just really enjoyable. And you can just get a really good feel for how clean and smooth that interface is going to be eventually. So thanks again for joining us, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, check out Colin on his YouTube channel, One Stop Co-op Shop. And follow us on Facebook at One Stop Co-OpCast. Finally, join our Slack group by emailing us at MVP Board Games for continued discussion on these topics throughout the week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to the end. The Aeon's End.